This week's episode of the Velonews Podcast is brought to us by Jiro, makers of the new Imperial Road Shoe. It's wired for speed, and at just 215 grams, the Jiro Imperial is lightweight and stiff, but also extremely comfortable because it's made with the new SynchroWire upper construction that's race-ready and luxuriously comfortable right out of the box. Features Jiro's own ultralight monofilament SyncWire mesh upper that fits and feels like second skin thanks to its stitchless, vented, and reinforced structure. Now, the Imperial features dual BOA IP1 buckles, soft lace guys, which allow you to adjust your speed on the fly while eliminating potential hotspots and pressure points, coupled with a high-modulus Easton EC90 SLX2 carbon fiber plate. You get a comfortable, supportive fit with highly efficient power transfer. Now, the Giro Imperial is already being used at the World Tour level. You may have seen Thibaut Pino of Groupama FDJ attacking in the Pyrenees while wearing them, and Tiffany Cromwell of the Canyon SRAM team has been racing on them through much of the season. We'll see her at the Colorado Classic uh, racing in the Giro Imperials as well. So thanks to Giro for sponsoring this week's episode of the podcast. Head over to Giro.com slash Imperial for more information on these awesome shoes. This week's episode of the Villainous Podcast also brought to us by Shammy Butter, Makers of the new Coconut Anti-Chafe developed to meet a demand for organic coconut oil product for athletes. Chamois Butter created its new Coconut Anti-Chafe Cream uh, in response to the growing popularity of coconut oil in skincare and beauty products. Coconut oil is naturally an excellent moisturizer. Shea butter, vitamins A and E condition the skin to protect any skin areas that experience friction. Restorative ingredients like aloe vera and tea tree oil contain natural antiseptic properties to soothe already chafed skin. Uh, this coconut anti-chafe cream is great, and it comes to us from a brand that is just tested, tried and true in the cycling space. That, of course, is Chamois Butter. So go to ChamoisButter.com to check out the new coconut anti-chafe. Thanks to Chamois Butter for sponsoring this week's episode. Okay, let's get on with the program. Uh, welcome back to the Villain News Podcast. Fred Dreyer here. I am on a bit of a sabbatical right now, but I wanted to keep the podcast going. And so for this week, we have two great interviews with you. We have Aaron Huck, an Olympic hopeful mountain biker, and we have TJ Eisenhart, uh, the free spirit of the North American domestic peloton. Now, my first interview is with Aaron Huck. Aaron is one of the top cross-country racers in North America over the last decade. She is really wanting to qualify for the 2020 Olympics, but she is coming back from a pretty brutal injury that she suffered at the beginning of this year. We link up and talked all about her comeback from the injury, the new perspective it has given her on her racing career, and a couple different topics, including the impact that Kate Courtney has had on the other North American uh, women racing cross country. I think Aaron has some really interesting perspective on how Kate's success has changed the mindset uh, for her and some of the other women. Uh, the next interview is with TJ Eisenhart. Look, you're all pretty, pretty familiar with TJ. We've had him on the podcast before. He's a fun guy, real free spirit. We talked a bit about uh, some of the changes in his life. He recently became a father, said that has changed his perspective on racing. Uh, he also has been dabbling in gravel racing. And so he gives us the load 
lowdown on his effort there at Dirty Kanza and at the Crusher and the Tusher. Now, look, full disclosure, the TJ interview is part of an advertising deal that we have with Monster Hydro. So we talk a bit about the product, but then talk about his racing and other topics. Um, I believe in full transparency, and we will likely have some more interviews coming up in the fall and in the winter that are sponsored interviews that are part of advertising uh, relationships. And I will always uh, give you guys the heads up when one of these interviews is part of an advertising deal. Um, are we only going to talk about the products or are we only going to talk about the advertising? No. Um, I, you know, I think that someone like TJ is very interesting as well. So um, that's what we have for you this week. I will be back in about a week and a half or so, and we can link up to talk about all the interesting happenings in the world of world tour racing. So without further ado, let's hear from Aaron Huck. Welcome back to the Vel News Podcast. Fred Dreyer here. I'm sitting in a cafeteria of a ski resort, but it's summertime. There's no skiers. No one waiting in line for their overpriced cheeseburgers. Instead, it's just me and Aaron Huck sitting here at this table. Aaron is one of the uh, bright, shining stars of American cross-country mountain bike racing. Aaron's been at it for a long time. She's one of the hopefuls for the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo. Aaron, thanks so much for making time for the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. So, Aaron, we are at the USA National Championships right now. We're a few minutes away from the start of the women's pro race. You are a multiple-time national champion. You're not racing this year. Uh, let's get the listeners up to speed. Why are you not racing this year? Um, I fractured my ankle at while I was pre-riding the course for the first World Cup in Germany. So, that was back in May. So, I fractured my ankle in Germany, had three surgeries, and I'm on the the mend so no racing yet what can you tell us about the pain of fracturing that ankle oh i don't know i mean i broke my hand last year <laughs> and neither fracture hurt when you like i don't know it doesn't hurt when you break something uh -huh. i think you still have like enough adrenaline etc um so it wasn't physical pain but i also knew that i had broken something bad so there was definitely uh a huge amount of just despair, right? When I realized that, oh, shit, I can't believe that I just did that. Um, but then, yeah, the pain, physical pain set in after that with surgery, et cetera. But. Now, there's, there was some significance behind this fracture. Um, Aaron is one of the hopefuls going for the 2020 Olympics. This is 2019. Um, the points accrued by Aaron and Chloe Woodruff and Leah Davison and Kate Courtney and the other uh, American women go towards the number of places, pl spots that the U.S. gets at the Olympic Games. And so having an injury that early in the season, I can only imagine must have been a big setback. I mean, what was the emotional fallout from this injury? Um, well, there were a lot of reasons why at the time it was pretty devastating. I think the biggest, you know, I've felt like I was in the shape of my life. Um, Kate and I had been racing kind of neck and neck all spring and I was kind of sick of getting second place to her. But at the same time, you know, I was, I was there racing with her and then, you know, I, I hurt myself and then to see her go on and win the world cups and then even see Chloe win the short track is just kind of like, ah, I, I knew that I had been right there and was kind of taken out of that potential opportunity so that was one heartbreak and then the points obviously that's that's a big concern I, um 
Kate is a rock star and is just racking up the points. I did a fair amount of work last fall over the winter and then this spring to chase a lot of points. And then Chloe was earning a lot of points too. So we actually had built up kind of a nice surplus. Um, and it's the top two ranked nations get three starting spots. So that's our goal. We're still ranked second right now. Um, but we've got other countries that are, are kind of catching up. Take me through then the process of working through that setback from a mental and emotional perspective. How did you wrap your brain around it and then move on from it? Well, I think, you know, I, like I said, I, I had actually broken my hand last summer. So I had already experienced, you know, a bad injury that had taken me out of racing that had offset some of my goals, I guess, for that season. So I knew what that had taken to come back from that. And when I knew pretty much instantly that I had broken my ankle, I just kept saying over and over again, I can't do this again. I can't do this. I can't do this. Um, but then after I had the first surgery in Germany and I woke up and it's like, I can do this, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, we have a plan. I, I still have time. And I just kind of realized how, you know, it's just, you realize how much you love the sport and it's such a, it brings me so much happiness and fulfills me in such a way that nothing else ever could, that it's not a matter of whether or not. I was going to be able to come back. It was just a matter of when. Um, so that's just kind of been my my mentality since then. It's interesting. That uh, reminds me of the conversation that I had with Chloe on this very podcast a few months ago, just talking about the ebb and flow of what it means to be an elite uh, female cross-country racer in America, which is that you are going to be faced with setbacks, with injuries, with things not going the way you want. And there's no like riches and glory involved. Like to a certain degree, the motivation to keep going has to come from within, has to come from another place because um, there's so few opportunities for, you know, this sponsorship is tough and like, you know, having, like I said, like riches and glory is tough. And so having that motivation come from within, I don't know, it, it, in talking to her, I was like, wow, you know, she really wants this. Like that's, that's some actually le very legitimate pure motivation to do well in this sport yeah i mean and it is it's the, i mean it's a very individual sport um you're kind of i consider me racing against me for the most part it's like i've you know improved so much as a bike racer since i've been racing at the elite level and i've learned so much and i still know that there's stuff I can improve on and things that I can learn. And it's just, you want to be able to get to that place just personally. Like I, I know that I can do better here. So I, I need to do better here just to prove it to myself. Aaron, we were talking just now before I hit record about how our paths did sort of intersect a bit. I was Vela News's mountain bike editor from 2004 to 2009, covering cross country, you know, North American and global cross country racing. And that was very much the era of like factory teams and of people having, you know, full time jobs and support staff and um, the Trek factory team. And a lot of these, a lot of the structures from that era 
disappeared shortly thereafter. And that was the era when you were coming up racing. And I was hoping you could talk, tell our listeners about how you have had it, how you have made it work for you in this changing economy of sponsorship and backing and, and getting to the races. Yeah. I mean, I kind of have a different story compared to a lot of my other fellow racers. Like I did not grow up racing a bike necessarily. Um, I dabbled in various sports, tried triathlon, was running, etc. Tried mountain biking. My very first mountain bike national championships, I think was what we were talking about was in 2009. Um, and I think I got ninth or something there. And I was like, holy shit, I just got top 10. Like, I didn't even think that was possible. Um, so I started later in life. I didn't do my first world championships until I was over 30. So um, I already had a full-time job. I had a house with a mortgage, et cetera, um, and then started racing and was just self-supported for the most part. Like, I was on a local team um, that was awesome. They were super, like, just whatever I wanted to do, they were there. Um, and, you know, I didn't really get any financial support for a long time. Um, and I just made friends on the circuit and friends helped me out. Friends would feed me in the, the feed zone. And, um, yeah, the first year that I did the world cups was in like 2013 and I just paid my own way. I just showed up like, Hey guys, <laughs> here I am. Let's see what this is like. Um, so that's a little bit different than folks that might've gone through now, you know, you can go through NICA, you can go through like the U23. I think that USA cycling has done a really good job with their development programs. Um, but you're right. There's not very much trade team support. USA cycling has had to step up and they have stepped up. And I think that we see that because, you know, they helped me out. I wouldn't be able to get to the world cups if it wasn't for USA cycling. Um, and that's not, I'm not trying to like give them a plug or anything. It's just the truth. Like I would not be here if they hadn't recognized that um, I was good and um, helped me at the World Cup level. I think that's another interesting uh, point I wanted to segue into, which was, you know, in the in the days when I covered racing with trade teams, um, you know, you would have Americans going to these World Cups and they would want to do well in the races to try and get the maximum number of points, but they were still racing against each other. They were still competitors first and then sort of, you know, country women, countrymen second. But in talking to Chloe, it sounds like between the American women chasing for the, the Tokyo spots, there's a certain like, heightened level of camaraderie. And maybe it's because you're all, you know, many of you are being backed by USA Cycling in this endeavor. Um, but I don't know, maybe there are other reasons. What can you say about this sense of camaraderie as the four of you head towards 2020? Um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't even know how it shifted. I do feel like there has been a shift. Um, and I think that you're right. I think that a lot of it might have to do with the fact that we are representing USA Cycling, that they are supporting us at the World Cups, and that when we race the World Cups, we're actually wearing a USA Cycling jersey. So I, I do think that that has something to do with it. Um, but, I mean, Lee is a huge influence, I think, because um, she's been racing for such a long time and is such a an advocate for... I mean, little Bellas, girls on bikes, but her fellow competitors. Like, I feel like 
she kind of um, has this mentality that if you do well and push me, that means that I'm going to do well and even get to be better. And I feel like that, you know, is how Kate feels. That's how Chloe feels. And that's how I feel um, too, because it's like the faster that we are, the faster that I am, I'm going to make Kate faster. And by Kate being faster, she's going to make me faster. And, you know, Chloe being fast, like we all just are growing as individuals, but because of having that, that teammate camaraderie, um, there will, I mean, at the end of the day, we will have to race against each other at some point or sometimes. Um, but that's, that's the nature of the game. And I think that it just helps to know, like, just as long as you kind of focus on this is what I can do, this is my race and not necessarily targeting a specific person, which is maybe how it had been in the past. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a shift and I feel like we've, we're, we've, we're closer as, as a team. Now you were involved in the Olympic chase in 2016, correct? Yes. What, talk to us about that, uh, journey, how it went for you. What are the memories that stand out and what ultimately, you know, you did not make the team. What was, what was that process like? Um, well, I think that I was selected to go to the test event in 2015. Um, and that was in Rio. So it was myself, Chloe, Georgia, and Leah. Um, and I think that that was really the first time that it even hit me that, oh, this could be a potential option. Um, and that was pretty crazy. And, you know, cause I, I had just done my first world championships in 2012. So I had only been racing kind of at the international level for three years. Um, so I did not expect to be there. Um, I was still working full time and yeah, I, I was, I was pretty pumped, but it didn't ever really seem like something that could come true. I think it was one of those, Oh man, I really wish, I really wish that could happen. But deep down inside, I don't know that I ever believed that I could, that could happen to me. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't think that I would be an Olympian. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't know. Then when I was named to the long team and I think the actual chase, the competition happened in 2016 and that was pretty tough for me. I don't think that I had the, the mental maturity to, come to races and race at my best without being intimidated by the fact that, Oh, I'm racing for an Olympic spot. Um, I also took some time off of work finally. And I think that I like panicked because now I had more time. Mm. I wasn't working as much and yeah, it was just kind of didn't work out for me. It was a big, a big heartbreak for sure. Cause I think in hindsight, I actually did, have a good chance of going and i think that i more or less just blew it because i couldn't keep my shit together mentally <laughs> do you feel different this go around yeah i do um i feel like i'm a completely different racer than i was back then um what's changed well i've been racing longer right so i've got three or four more years racing at the international level i feel like i have a lot more confidence um I've learned a lot about racing. Um, I've learned what 
tires I like, what suspension setup I like, and just kind of stuff that you take for granted. Um, when you're starting out, you're just like, oh yeah, I just r- race whatever tires. Um, so that's one thing. I am working less, and I've been. I kind of debated last year at this time. I was like, well, I should probably quit my job and just be a bike racer, and ultimately realized that I need to have something outside of bike racing to keep me mentally sane. Um, so still working, but not as much. And I think that I've struck a good balance and I feel good about where I'm at. And I think that if these injuries would have happened to me four years ago, I would have given up and said, the you know, the world is over. Um, but now it's just like, well, these happened and we're going to work through it and I'm going to come out on the other side and I'll probably be stronger physically and or mentally. So a few months ago, USA cycling released the qualification criteria for the 2020 Olympics. And, you know, in years past, we've seen that, that qualification criteria, um, lean a little bit more towards consistency over lots of different races. And in this go around, it's really focused on two races. You have the world championships at the end of this year, and then you have the world cup opener at the beginning of 2020, a top eight, a win, you know, basically whoever does the best at these races has a really good chance of making it onto the team. When they first announced this criteria, what was your initial opinion of it? Um, I had mixed thoughts, um, honestly. So, I think I had assumed that it would have been more consistency and there is a criteria. The last, the last criteria is a top 10 and the world cup overall for this season. Um, so that would, you know, potentially be called a consistency metric, if you will. Um, but the thing that I appreciate most about the criteria is that I feel as though, all four of us that have been targeted as the potentials have a chance of automatically qualifying. Um, so before the criteria were basically you had to get a top three and that was it. Um, and that's really hard to do, obviously. I mean, just bad luck can ruin that for you. But now it's a top eight, which is completely attainable, I think, for any four of us. So that's really good um, because – you know, it gives you an attainable goal, but it also will make it a little bit tricky because all four of us could qualify. So <laughs> we will, yeah, see how it goes. When you think back to your top international race, and it could be results-based, it could just be the way you felt. Uh, tell me the story of it. What race was it and what was the story of that race and why it was so good? Um, I would have to say like my international race that I'm most proud of would probably be, um, honestly, it would probably be Nova Mesto in 2016. And that was world championships. And that had just been literally like a week after the Olympic team had been, you know, decided I was pretty heartbroken and in a tough spot. Um, and then we're at world championships and you kind of have to put on a brave face and just like I'm racing for USA cycling. They just broke my heart, but I'm going to do the best that I can do. And I got 11th, which was, I think I was the second best U S American woman and U S American women got one that 
weekend, basically. So we did, we were the top ranked nation after that weekend. And I think it just showed like, hey, not only am I strong, but so are these other women. And, you know, I had a great race. That was a, you know, a breakout race for me to be 11th after getting, you know, in the 20s at the World Cups before that. So it was kind of proof to myself that, yeah, I can, I can do this. Do you, I mean, do you try and channel that race ever when you're doing the World Cups these days? Like what type of, what type of mindset are you putting yourself in when you are racing the World Cups these days? Um, well, unfortunately I haven't had <laughs> that many chances because I was hurt last year and I was hurt this year. Um, yeah, I absolutely draw on that a little bit, that experience and just being like, you know, I'm just, I was so confident and I just didn't give a shit. Like, this is my race. I'm just going to do what, what I want to do and not care about how I finish anything. I just want to give it everything I have. And I think that now I try and channel that a little bit more. Just like, it's, this is my opportunity to prove to myself how fast I can go, how hard I can push that kind of thing. Um, but also having the short tracks as part of the world cups, I feel like has been huge for me mentally. Um, because I, for whatever reason, I just love short track and I seem to do pretty good at it. And that, you know, being able to have that confidence, just being like, you know what, I'm freaking good at this and I'm going to show you guys how it's done. (laughs) And then, you know, having that opportunity on a Friday and then just be like, yeah, you know, cross country, I'll, I'll see what I can do after, after short track. So I love watching them. I mean, yeah. they're such a good addition yeah. to the world yeah, cup I agree. and like having Red Bull broadcast them and they're fun and they're exciting and American women are good at them. We saw Chloe win one. Yeah. We saw Kate win two or three. I yeah. mean, it's just, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm a big fan of the short track edition. You know, your career, uh, 2009 till today, you know, there were Leo was racing at that time. Chloe was racing at that time. Georgia was um, racing at that time. She retired. You know, you, we see sort of the American women in cross country are always pretty competitive. But then I think about this era and there's this meteor that comes out of nowhere. Kate Courtney. Yeah. And like, she's really good. And she's a good junior and a good U23. And then, oh my gosh, she's like literally winning the world championships. You know, what, what were your first memories about her? And what do you, how do you think about the like, the shooting star of Kate Courtney coming through the American cross country uh, women's scene? I, I think it's awesome. I mean, I first got to know Kate when we were at, I think it was both of our first Pan American championships in Argentina, both of us way outside of our comfort zone. And we were roommates and she was a junior and I was, you know, racing elite. And, um, we weren't like sure about the food that we were being served. So like, I think she brought a packet of tuna fish and I had a packet of rice and I remember us like sitting in our room sharing this like camp you know food that we had brought and that was the first time that I got to know her and I just and ever since then like my impression hasn't changed she's extremely positive she's extremely confident she is but also humble um and encouraging um I think that she's had a lot of support throughout her career and that has shown in how good she is. Um, and that has shown like what good support can do, Mm -hmm. I think too. Um, she's, 
like I was saying earlier, you know, you look at our competitors, especially the U.S. women, and there are certain aspects of each of the women that I get to race with that I really admire and try and emulate as much as I can. And for Kate, it has always been her tenacity and her mental fearlessness. She's, I think you can tell when you watch a race that she's just used to winning. She's had the opportunity, the skills, the um, genetic gifts, whatever, to be used to, you know, as a junior she was winning, as a U23 she was winning, and now she's winning as an elite. And I think there's just this sense of confidence and fearlessness that you get when you're used to racing from the front. And I just love that she has that. And she's just, she'll go out there and make a race hard. And I really appreciate that as opposed to kind of like, sitting in and letting other people dictate the pace. She's like, nah, I'm doing this. You guys come with me. We're going to make this hard. May the best, best woman win. What impact has her very rapid ascendance in the elite, um, in elite races? What impact has that had on the mentality of you and Leah and Chloe and, and the other women who've been battling each other for years and years and years? Um, I mean, I think it's like, you know, it's, it's similar to what, what was it? The four minute mile. Like once somebody breaks that barrier, all of a sudden everybody is capable of breaking that barrier. And I think that seeing Kate win world championships and just being like, holy shit, she just won. Now it's just like, why can't Chloe win a world cup? Like, why not? So she goes out and wins a world cup short track. I I think if you would have asked her, you know, two years ago, if she ever thought that she'd be on a podium, she would have said, well, maybe, but I think that having somebody blaze the path has made us all like, okay, now let's do this. Let's, if she can do it, let's, let's be right there. Well, we have the Olympics coming up about a year from uh, this month. Um, What, like, where, where's your mind at with Olympics right now? Um, that's a, that's a tough one. I think that I've, I mean, now I I do think that that's a legitimate goal and that's something that I'm going to work hard towards. Um, I am extremely grateful that I still have an opportunity to qualify. I don't know if it'll be at Mount St. Anne, but definitely in Nova Mesto, I feel like that. And it's funny because when I broke my ankle, everybody was like, oh, shucks, you're out for the Olympics. And then like, well, not really. I mean the biggest criteria is in May and that's going to be the one that really decides who's going. So I think that I still have plenty of time to, to target that race. Um, but it also is really, really hard to think about it coming down to one race. Um, so that's something that is tough for me because I'm usually the consistency type rider. Um, so yeah, I'm going to, give it a go and just be glad that I have the opportunity to, to try. Well, Aaron, it's going to be a story that we continue to follow throughout the year here uh, on the Vel News podcast and velnews.com. And I really appreciate you making some time to talk to us today. So best of yeah, luck. Thank you. With the recovery. <laughs> we'll be following you at the races and Aaron, Huck, we will let you go out and watch the race. Yeah. Woohoo. <laughs> Okay, before we get on to TJ, you heard me talk about it at the top of the show. It's the Giro Imperial Road Shoe. 
Wired for speed, just 215 grams, and an extremely stiff Easton EC90 SLX2 carbon fiber plate to get a comfortable, supportive fit with highly efficient power transfer. One thing I didn't talk about, though, the uh, Imperial comes with Jiro's adjustable supernatural fit footbed, which allows you to tune your level of arch support right out of the box for optimal pedaling efficiency. Again, Jiro.com slash Imperial to learn more about this awesome cycling shoe. Again, we talked about it at the top of the show, chamois butter and its new coconut anti-chafe. The coconut anti-chafe, I mean, it's just, it's perfect for any skin areas that experience friction. So think about it, thighs, armpits, toes, nipples, uh, your chamois area itself, and more, the organic coconut oil and shea butter deeply moisturizes to reduce friction, while restorative ingredients contain natural antiseptic properties to soothe already chafed skin, chamois butter, and its coconut anti-chafe, go to chamoisbutter.com. Okay, let's get on to TJ Eisenhardt. Okay, my next guest on the Villain News Podcast is a guy who we have heard from before. It's TJ Eisenhardt of the Arapaho Resources BMC Hincapi team. Uh, TJ, we're going to talk all about your racing campaign, your uh, dabbling in some of these gravel events, um, and what you got going on in your life, because you just became a father. Very, very exciting stuff. But before we get to that, TJ, your interview today is brought to us by Monster Hydro. Uh, What can you tell us about Monster Hydro? You've been racing and training with this stuff. Yeah, it's been absolutely phenomenal having Monster uh, Hydro come on board to sponsor, you know, cycling in general, but sponsor us, uh, our team this year, for us to be able to train with it and race with it, be able to really try it out, and be able to know that it's a great product. Monster Hydro is our new, like, water-based drink with sodium, potassium, it has B vitamins, uh, it's got their electrolytes, it's got caffeine, so it's a phenomenal, you know, beverage to have. And while you're out training on those long endurance races or, you know, I like to have it at the end of my training when, you know, you need that kind of that caffeine and those electrolytes to kind of get that final kick in and everything like that. And so, uh, I use monster hydro all the time, not just in my cycling, but also when I'm out in the studio painting, you know, getting inspiration, need kind of also to fuel up cause it's hot down in the desert. And so, yeah, man, I love monster hydro. Thank you guys. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like you uh, you've become like a one man monster hydro uh, (laughs) dealer, basically dealer, basically down in southern Utah. Anyone comes through, they can stop off at the Eisenhart residence and uh, have a sip, have a bottle. Yeah, they've been so monster hydro have been super supportive with me and the team. They sent me uh, a little mini fridge uh, to put in the studio uh, at the beginning of this year, and it's been so fun. You know, anytime I have any anybody come ride with me or anybody come stop by. Uh, or my mother-in-law who was ha- helping out with like just babysitting the baby, you know, I was able to, you know, give her a, a lot of monster hydro supply. And it's like I said, it's a great drink with a lot of electrolytes, B vitamins, ca- you know, some caffeine in there. So, you know, I didn't take like a Coca-Cola during the race or so it's, it's awesome. All right, TJ, we got to get to – I, I buried the yeah, lead on man. this one. We got to talk about what's going on with you. So you are, you know, cyclist, yeah. painter, and you have added a new label to the TJ Eisenhart trio. You are now a dad. You and yeah. your wife, Heather, welcomed baby girl just a week ago. Uh, so yeah. let's get your thoughts one week into being a, a dad at this point. 
Man, it's been seriously such a trip. I mean, you wake up just, it, it, it's just like you're in a dream, honestly. Uh, I can't be any happier. I mean, uh, you have this opportunity to do this amazing thing, like raising this beautiful little girl with, you know, the love of your life. And it's just like, it's just, I mean, it just blows my mind. You know, you, I see the amount of work my wife puts in, you know, like feeding and waking up in the middle of the night. Like last night, she maybe got like an hour or two of sleep and you just see her and again, this morning she has a, like a smile on her face. And so it's just like, this baby has just truly brought a new level and a new perspective into our lives where, I mean, the moment I hold her in my arms and look at her, it's just like this, this like tunnel vision of just pure love and positivity but it's like this quiet and humble love and positivity it's not loud it's you know you just feel calm and relaxed and you feel focused and you know you want to build something you know you want to keep progressing and being a better person you know just from seeing her and so it's uh <laughs> i i mean i yeah i hope everyone can one day feel like this and you know have this opportunity because it's seriously it's the hardest thing in the world uh, that I've done, uh, and just cause you're so exhausted, but it's, it's the most rewarding thing in the world. I mean, just even changing her diaper or I know it sounds crazy, but you're just, again, you're just in awe, you know, of, wow, I can't believe I created this beautiful human being with my love of my life. And so it, uh, yeah, it truly is just kind of opened my eyes and perspective and, uh, just a new, a new way you kind of see the world, you know, I feel like it almost just slowed down things and, you know, <laughs> you drive, I drive a lot slower now. I like, uh, you know, you just kind of are a lot more calm, I guess. So not as worried anymore. <laughs> uh, will, uh, will she be a cyclist? What will she, what will you tell her about <laughs> uh, bicycles and bike racing and cycling? Oh man, I hope, uh, yeah, I hope she rides a bike. I mean, I don't care if she's a cyclist or anything like that. I hope she, you know, find something that she loves and pursue, pursues it. And, you know, that's why I, I really see such a big role and responsibility upon what I do and, uh, how I make a living, you know, based, you know, I, I make my living off of the things that I love doing most, you know, cycling are, uh, just, you know, and so it's like, I put in the work to be able to do that. And it's a great opportunity. And it's like, that's exactly what you want your daughter and, or any of your children to, you know, have that opportunity to be able to be able to see like, Oh, I can do what I dream about doing. I can do what I love to do because my dad did it, you know, and made a living from it or, you know, it's, so it's, uh, I, I don't really don't care what she does as long as she loves doing it and it brings a smile to her face. It's like, <laughs> that's all I could wish, you know, but Oh man. Yeah. I can't wait to take her out on little bike rides on these little dirt paths around my house and, you know, take her up, uh, yeah up to Brian head and sh like go skiing or something like a bunch of stuff that she just can't wait to teach her. But yeah, I, I can't wait to, to see what she loves and supporting her no matter what. <laughs> so TJ, one of the stories that we have been following this year at Velo news is yeah. the growth and explosion of popularity of gravel. We've covered it for a while and how yeah, this man. year there've been a number of, um, international and domestic pro road cyclists who have been, uh, participating in these big gravel races, races, races like yeah. the Dirty Cans and the Crusher. And, you know, there were a number of teams and riders that made a big buzz about it. Hey, we're going to do this race, you know, big marketing <laughs> campaigns and stuff. Yeah. And then there were some guys who just kind of flew under the radar and did it. And you're one of those guys. You raced both Dirty Cans and Crusher. And yeah. I know I saw some photos on your of, on your Instagram beforehand saying that you were going to do it. But, <laughs> yeah, you know, it was... first of all, let's get to those experiences. But second of all, it seems like you kind of did it 
did it on the download. You didn't make a huge amount of buzz uh, yeah. around it. Why? Why was that? Uh, man, I think just because I believe in it, and I truly I see the long run in it. Um, I love gravel. I, I seriously have never found something that's more like my personality on a bike. You know, the moment I jump on this awesome BMC uh, gravel bike that they sent me. Uh, I just feel like super calm, relaxed. Like I'm able to be more artistic and creative with my riding now. Like you could jump on this single track trail to take you to this fire road to take you to that road. You know, it's like I used to ride the road and you'd see all these different trails or dirt roads and you'd be like, Oh man, I need to bring my mountain bike out here and do that. Or, Oh man, I wish I could take that. And now you can. And so it truly is just like this crazy sense of nirvana, man. Like no pun intended with my baby's name, but it's so freeing and so, uh, awesome. And the fact that you jump on the gravel bike and don't have to worry about any cars, it's just amazing. It completely changes the dynamic of cycling where that whole stress level of anxiety and everything about getting hit or is someone seeing me is gone. You know, it's like, <laughs> I don't now don't ride the gravel with my earbuds in or, you know, cause you're just, you're just chilling, you know, whereas when the moment I jump on the road, I, I actually find myself wanting like the earbuds in because you get nervous around like the car noise. But, uh, so I think gravel is just such a interesting aspect and I've been following it for a year, few years now watching the crusher. I've always been a big fan of the crusher and always have wanted to do the crusher, uh, just being such, you know, <laughs> a big fan and friend of Burke Swindlehurst. I ride with him all the time now. And this year, he's definitely the reason, like, I got into gravel. You know, he was uh, really pushing me a lot, just being like, yo, man, like, you got to get a gravel bike. There's some amazing roads around here, like, stuff that would blow your mind. And, like, he wasn't lying. Like, where's now these dirt roads you can take that take you out in the back of, like, Cedar Breaks or Zion National Park that, yeah, I saw two little, I saw a, a bear cub and a mama bear. And it was just like, this is awesome. You know, you hardly experience this. Um, and I think like gravel racing is gravel racing is such this unique dynamic and aspect to the sport of cycling that you know you have this ability to race the pros when you know you're not a pro you know you, everyone races together but as you can notice like it doesn't affect the outcome of the race like it's still the front guys at the front you know so like the race breaks up you know it's like kanza like kanza is incredible you get you wake you start off at early early in the morning and like the moment your wheels touch the gravel <laughs> the first gravel section, you're catching the sunrise, go over those sweet Kansas, uh, Kansas fields. And, uh, it's pretty awesome. It's definitely an experience, you know? And I think a lot of people, especially those people who are working day to day, you know, <laughs> like uh, nine to five jobs, uh, who are just like, you know, need kind of that almost mental therapy, you know, that physical breakdown, that mental breakdown, you know, cause you don't, it's funny. You don't see that. Like people aren't signing up for the local crits, but yet these gravel races are, you know, selling out, you know? Uh, and so it's pretty, it's, I think it's really is a lot to do with just normal people just wanting to kind of push themselves in an, in a way that it's not like a 30 minute crit or, you know what I mean? Like, uh, so it's, it really is an awesome aspect in that sense. And then also just with the, the whole vibe of it, there's no ego and, uh, the gravel racing. And I thought that was so funny because that's one thing that really drives me nuts when you go to a bike race. Uh, it's just pure ego everywhere. You know, it's like, oh man, we don't like this team. Oh, we're against this team. Oh, those guys, oh, 
you know, uh, you know, it's like, and even in the races, you, you don't talk a whole lot, uh, because a lot of times you're like, Oh, we're against you or, you know, and it's like in gravel, it's like, man, <laughs> you pass someone, someone passes you, you're just like, you're cheering them on, you know, or like at Kansas, you're going, if you're doing the 200 miles, like you're seeing the 300 guys come the opposite way. And you're like, Oh my gosh, like they're cheering you on, you know? And so it's like, it's this crazy aspect where it's just really relaxed, really cool. No ego. Um, I really enjoyed it. And so like, you know, I think with anything that you love and enjoy, you don't need to like boast about it at the beginning, you know, definitely almost cherish it and let it kind of grow for it, grow for itself. But, uh, yeah, me and Burke, I mean, I can tell you since Kansas, I've only been riding the gravel bike. Uh, it just truly is like, I can't even jump on the road bike anymore. I just love the gravel bike so much. It's so, it's so free, you know, and it's like, you can do these incredible, uh, climbs just outside my house that like prior I wasn't able to, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's, it's sweet, man. I really love it. I think it's, I think it's a great change in the sport as well. You know, you have guys like Alex Howes, Lachlan Morin, uh, Peter Staten, uh, Kiel Ryan, the guy at Taylor, you know, these world tour riders who did Kansas and I did a few did, you know, like Belgian waffle ride and, uh, crusher. And I think it's so good to kind of just mix it up for the world tour as well, you know, kind of give, I think it'd be sweet if, you know, eventually you also had some European, uh, world tour teams kind of throwing in as well to do that. Uh, just as well, just like nothing like where they're taking it too serious, but you know, where it's, it's like destroying it, but, uh, enough where it's like, Oh, this is pretty cool. You know, you're having Thomas again show up here or, you know what I mean? But, uh, uh, I, I, I dig it. I thought it was cool. I got mad respect for, uh, yeah, everyone at Kansas and Crusher who puts it on and all those races. So it's, it's fun, man. Yeah. I mean, Kansas, we know as a race that just dishes out a long day and a lot Dude. of physical punishment. Um, how did oh you find gosh. it? Yeah. How did you find it from a, um, pain and just, hard effort perspective and how would you compare that to what you find in a uh, in a road race yeah i mean i started off because uh, i had just gotten the bike the day uh like this not even the bike i have now but a stock bmc because um the shipping was delayed from my uh, my race bike and so bmc sent out just a stock uh bike to the bike shop and they built it up the night before kanza and I was able to jump on it for an hour the night before Kansas. And then Kansas was the first Oof. ride slash race. Um, and like, I had no support there. Uh, and I was just like, oh, I, I had a few like honey stinger waffles in my back pocket. Just like totally miss, like, I mean, just totally not in the right space. Like just miss, uh, misjudging it, uh, for sure. And, uh, I was just hanging out with Finney a lot there. And then I was like, Oh, I'll race. Like, I want to race it. You know, I want to be there at the beginning and see like how it goes. Cause I felt good. And so I raced it, uh, up till about the first feed zone, uh, when I had my first like puncture and then I didn't have anything. Like I didn't even have a tube or any, like a, a pump or anything. Like I literally had nothing for this race. And I was like, uh, I just sat there. Mike Rice came by, helped me out. And then, uh, <laughs> get to the first feed zone and luckily I see Taylor roll in. And so I was like, Oh, I'll just roll with Taylor. And I get to, you know, the EF tent and, uh, Alan's, Alan's there. And, uh, they all like gave me some food to get through the race. Uh, but, uh, 
yeah, then I just rolled with Taylor. We got rolling again with Kill uh, Ryan, uh, and we were in a good group. And then Taylor flatted, and so I was just like, all right, like I'll just kick it with Taylor. And it was just kind of one flat after the other. And so like that race after the first speed zone, the first fifty miles, it then turned into like, all right, like we're just riding this now, you know, at a good hard tempo, mm-hmm. but it wasn't like that you weren't crushing your legs the whole time. It was more of that slow grind that it was just like definitely more of a mental, uh, like journey, uh, than anything, you know? And so, uh, it was, it was awesome. And then, yeah, we had a lot of <laughs> more flats, but I mean, the people I met, we met, the like the, the things you go through. I mean, what I'm like, <laughs> before the third field, we're just like as hard as we can over these like little rollers, just racing and passing all these people. And these people I'm sure are just like, what idiots, like we're not even <laughs> close. And it's true. Like then we blew up and a lot of people passed us. Uh, but it just like was like, Oh man, this is what bike riding is about. Like, this is awesome. Like just purely exhausting, ex- like pulling everything out of your body. Like, the fact that you're racing from sunrise to sunset, like it's just so poetic and so romantic and like you finish and you're just truly, I mean, I would just like, I finished, gave my bike to the bike shop and had a walk from the finish line back to like the dorms where I was staying. And it was like over maybe like a kilometer and a half. And it was just like in your socks, just walking back to the dorms because you're so exhausted. And like, you know, it's, it was me, but like I woke up the next morning for my flight to fly home and I was leaving there at 4.30 a.m. And as I'm leaving, I see this woman finishing as well. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is what it's about. Like, man, she, she's been out there for 22 hours riding. Like there's no support out there. There's no signs. There's nothing like, that's why I truly find it amazing that, you know, these events like are so appealing to everyone because they're just pure sufferfest, but it's purely all about like kind of almost that detox for these you know, normal day-to-day jobs that kind of suck the life out of you. <laughs> and how about uh, Crusher and the Tesher? That's, you know, it's a shorter race, but tons Dude. of climbs, really hard. Oh, We've, man. You know, had a number oh, of totally. our staffers here who have suffered their way through that. How did that race go for you? Oh, my gosh. That is by far one of my favorite races. It's just such a beautiful race. Uh, and Burke is such a good friend, and I, like, love riding with him and uh, talking with him and hanging out. And but that race, man, it's completely opposite compared to Kanza. Kanza, you know, it's just about a, this slow kind of momentum throughout the day, building, 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 slowly cracking, where Crusher is just like a normal race, you know, just on gravel. So <laughs> it's it's fast. It's crazy hard. So that's why, I mean, it was great, like, seeing, like, oh, where, you're, where the legs are, you know, compared to those guys on those climbs, uh, you know, and so – uh, cause it was full on race against, you know, the best, uh, it was a tough field and, uh, definitely I was, it's probably one of the most exhausted I've been after a race. I, I was pretty, pretty toast, but, uh, it's definitely, like I said, it's such a, those events, man, those, these gravel events just squeeze everything out of you, you know, like that's, it's no matter what, you're just always suffering over it. It's not like you can't do the crusher. And be like, oh, I just took it easy today. Like, you can't do the uh, Kanza and just be like, oh, I just took it easy today. You know, like, oh, I just, I just rolled in, you know, with the Peloton. I just did this. It's like, no, it's like everyone is kind of this mental journey, you know, like Crusher. We're all solo dolo once we hit the cold to crush all the way to the finish. Everyone is basically in ones and twos. And it's like, 
dude, that's 25 miles. Like that's a far distance to be solo in a race, you know, at high altitude, like you're mentally going through so many things and it's just, I love it. I love that mental side of it. <laughs> yeah. One of the reasons why we've really enjoyed covering these races and covering the growth of them is that it also just speaks to bike racing, uh, becoming more popular, getting more people into the sport. And, you know, we've written a lot about, um, the, the challenges with the pro road scene in the States with some of these really cool races yeah. struggling for survival. Some of the cool, you know, really te- good teams that we, uh, follow, uh, yeah, it's crazy. Having, you know, tough years year in and year out. And yeah, I mean, within that greater context, what have those gravel races meant for you within the context of just bike racing in the States? It definitely has uh, opened up this new, like I said, perspective on racing in general where you see like, wow, it, it, uh, there's this other side of it. You know, it's not just uh, one side as well. And it's like, again, it's not just one bike as well. You have these, you know, this other option with this gravel bike. And, uh, you know, it, it definitely for me is just, I think it's been so great, especially the prep going into fatherhood, being I'll have something like this where I wasn't just like killing myself doing the same routes that I was on my road bike day in and day out and kind of like just focusing too much on like, you know, your fitness, I guess. Uh, cause right before you have that baby, you're so nervous, you're so paranoid, you're so, you know, just worried about, uh, your, the mama's health and baby's health. And so you're just, uh, you're nervous. And so it makes everything else kind of on top, like harder to do. And so gravel was a great like way for me to just like, all right, instantly leave kind of like you could instantly escape the city like in an instant jump on a dirt trail and go out and you know just be chill and have it be quiet and so it just then also you know kind of became that meditation and it still has like stayed that meditation for me where it's like all right you're with the baby all day and your wife and you're you know and now you have this ability to still go out and ride and have this like quiet and just like all right bring yourself center so you can go back home with good attitude, happy vibes, you know, to be like the best man you can be. So it's, it's been a, I like it a lot. Awesome. Well, Hey TJ, before like we the, uh, get yeah. out of here, man, it sounds like you also, you know, we've, yeah, we've written about, we've written about you on the side a bunch with your, uh, oh, racing yeah. and also your painting, but it sounds like you, you have, uh, you have a pretty good, you have like a <laughs> piece of public artwork that just went up. Uh, yeah, recently. man. I, uh, Tell me about this yeah, mural was- in downtown St. George. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. Uh, it's on the uh, Rapid Cycling, uh, so the bike shop on Bluff, North Bluff Street uh, in downtown St. George, and it's a giant, it's a 34, 10 by 34 foot wall. Uh, so it's a big piece uh, of this like, you know, desert vibe with this mountain biker in it, just kind of ripping down. And uh, it was funny, it was just, uh, came all together. I was talking to the bike shop one day, and they're like, they're a big fan of my artwork, and uh, they're like, Oh, let's, we'd love to get something from you one day. And, uh, we're like, Oh, let's do a mural. And I was so keen on doing a mural. I thought, Oh, that would be so great. Like any way to push yourself. I mean, it's like an interval, you know, you haven't done it before. It's brand new. And so, uh, it took a few months to get approved by the city that, you know, anything, anytime you do something like that, you have to always get it approved by the city. Uh, and so once I got approved, I, I got home from Europe in April and, uh, or May and, um, you know, just busted it out. And, uh, it was so awesome, man. And so sweet. And, uh, it then opened the doors where I did like, uh, I painted a, a bike for that, for the bike shop and did uh, a few other things. Uh, uh, so it's been, it's been pretty sweet doing these, uh, uh, been definitely super busy with a lot of, 
um, commission uh, our jobs. So it's been sweet. Awesome. Well, send us a photo yeah. of this uh, mural. We'll put it in yeah, the dude. post. Yeah, absolutely. On the absolutely. website. Well, TJ, thank you so much for making yeah, time Fred, for us. Thank you, man. We're going to keep following <laughs> you on the road and gravel scene. And yeah, dude, we'll, I appreciate we'll it. Let you get back to changing some diapers. <laughs> absolutely, Fred. Take it easy, man. Have a good one.